Today, you have a chance to become a premium member of the podcast. Click one of the premium membership levels and you can get everything from a free book by an ag arts artist to free postcards to extra bonus interviews to the chance to have a piece of writing critiqued by me and a free workshop or reading by Mary Swander. So go to those show notes, scroll down and click to become a premium member. Thank you so much for your support. Summer is the time for weddings in Free Martintown. So sit back and relax and listen to stories and tales, jokes and songs about brides and grooms, candles and stairways, ways to pick a mate and ways to make your honeymoon getaway. The cook stoves rolled down the gravel road in front of my house. It was June, time for Joe and Clara's wedding. One, two, three, four cook stoves passed by, tied down to wagons, pulled by tractors or teams of horses. The stoves creaked and groaned over the bumps in the road, then were gone around the corner where my two Amish neighbors would marry in the morning in the barn. Five, six, seven, eight. The bride's aunts gathered outside in the evening by lantern light to begin rolling out the pie crusts and stirring together the ingredients. Lemon meringue, chocolate, rhubarb, and shoe fly pie. The ants cut lard into flour in bowls on folding tables in the yard, their husbands stoking up fires in the stoves. Nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Then the ants lifted their creations into their stoves, a sweet aroma wafting over the cornfields. With the crow, the rooster, the ants had made enough pies to feed the 500 wedding guests at least one piece with their six-course meal. The bride's relatives were the servers, hustling around their assigned tables in the immaculately clean machine shed, resting platters of cheese and raw vegetables in front of the guests. Next came cups full of nuts and a small salad with a pear half placed in the middle of a bed of lettuce. Then plates filled with chicken, mashed potatoes, and beans appeared. Bread baskets were passed down the line with small pats of butter. Once the water glasses were refilled, coffee was handed around, the servers balancing the china cups on their saucers. And then carts filled with pies wheeled toward the tables, the guests taking delight at the flavors set down before them. I had made a big faux pas at my first Amish wedding. I'd entered the barn and sat in the back on one of the low wooden benches. The previous night, the father and brothers of the bride slid the benches out of their slots in the wagon, unfolded them, and set them up in the barn in neat rows, divided by a center aisle. 
The wagon held not only the benches, but the silverware, tablecloths, napkins, plates, cups, and saucers, for all occasions, each in its own cubbyhole. The bench wagon circulated, holding everything in its place, from farm to farm for church services, weddings, and funerals. Men, seated on the benches in the front of the barn, were chanting the wedding vows in German, slowly, in deep resonant voices, one syllable held for at least seven or eight notes. Neighbors poured in in their black Sunday best, the men's jackets fastened tightly at their chins, the women's dresses pressed and pinned at their waists. Then men veered off to the right and sat together, the women to the left. Gradually, I realized I was on the wrong side of the barn, but no one said a word to me. They just nodded and smiled when they passed. I rose and scooted over to the benches on the women's side, settling in for a three-hour service in German and English, including the bride and groom dressed in black, making their appearance, saying their vows, and pronouncing themselves married. A sermon followed from the bride's father, his voice cracking, tears sliding down his cheeks. Unembarrassed, he simply pulled out a handkerchief, blew his nose, and continued. He told the bride and groom to love and care for each other, to understand that they were forming a new family, that they were leaving their own nuclear families and were to find refuge in one another. Another man arose and spoke in Dutch, another in English, the words stretching toward noon, my back aching, feet tucked under the low bench. Finally, the bride and groom made their exit in a quiet, reserved way, without musical accompaniment or loud processionals. I left with the crowd and wandered down the road to my home. Why did you leave the wedding? The bride's father asked me later that week. Where did you go after the service? Home, I said. Where was I supposed to go? Well, you didn't stay for dinner. Dinner? I didn't know about any dinner. Where was the dinner? In our other machine shed. Next time, please stay for dinner. So I stayed for dinner at the next neighborhood wedding, a dinner complete with freshly baked pies. After we'd eaten a sumptuous meal, the young people began a game of volleyball in the yard. Again, I found my way home. Then a few days later, a family member confronted me, this time the mother of the groom. We saw you leave the dinner. Why did you leave the wedding? What? I'm sorry. I stayed and ate dinner. No, no, there's a supper at night. Wait. I'm invited to that, too? Of course. And you can come back for breakfast, too. Well, I realized that getting a wedding invitation was monumental. Three meals, fun, and friendship. Maybe a volleyball game thrown in. A whole 24-hour event. So imagine my disappointment when a year rolled by and I didn't get an invitation to a favorite neighbor's daughter's wedding. Hey, I ribbed the parents. What happened to my invitation? 
Well, we invited 500 people, so we just had to cut it off somewhere. We had to cut it off somewhere. I know the field is limited in the Amish world. There are different sects of Amish, and it's not always easy to marry into a strange community. And most Amish are related, so you have to mix it up a little. Perhaps look for a mate in a different state. Many years ago, a 20-year-old neighbor was without prospects here in Fremartintown. So her grandparents went to Florida for the winter and hired two handsome young Amish men from Indiana to come and paint the inside of their house while they were away. Then they hired their granddaughter to cook for the men. She could have her pick. The winter was cold and snowy. The house was snugly warm. The granddaughter made three meals a day. The house was painted by the end of February, and when the grandparents arrived home in March, there was something in the oven and a wedding on the calendar. Sometimes my neighbors have to be a bit creative in finding a mate. Joe, the carpenter, became engaged to Clara, and I was cut out of that invitation, too. Oh, well. I was happy for Joe. His first wife had a long-suffering illness, and when she finally passed away, Joe became thin and grim, his straw hat pulled down over his eyes. He sat at his desk in his office of the lumberyard, going over his books, making marks in his ledger, rarely even looking up. Sometimes he wasn't there at all. Once my garden gate was rotting, the gate that he had made for me 30 years before. I simply lifted it off the hinges and drove it down to Joe's, only to find his office empty and this message on his desk. Gone to a wedding in Ohio. Take what you want and write it down in this notebook. I will send you a bill. I left my rotten gate propped up against Joe's desk and wrote in the notebook, Joe, can you make me a new gate, please? We'll pick up next Saturday. A week later, I stopped in, and there was a brand new gate, an exact replica of my old one, leaning against his desk. Joe nodded to me, his hat pushed back on his head, a faint smile across his face. How was the wedding in Ohio, Joe? Good, and it looks like there's going to be another one. Joe told me he would be marrying Clara, one of the maiden ladies. Clara was about 20 years Joe's junior, and a few weeks later, after all the pies had been eaten and the cook stoves hauled home, I found her working in the office, doing paperwork besides Joe, his hat resting squarely on his head. She was small and lively, as chatty as Joe was quiet. Congratulations, I said. Clara thanked me. We commented on the weather and the repairs that a crew was making on the highway. Joe went in and out of the office, bringing me a box of nails that I wanted to buy. Well, Clara hesitated, glancing at me, then at Joe. Some people in the community 
think that there is too much of an age difference. Between you and Joe? Yes. But why should you care? I asked. It's hard enough trying to find a mate. Why should age matter? Well, Clara began. I mean, really. It seems to matter to other people. All that matters is you love each other. I turned to Clara. Oh, I do, she said. I turned to Joe. He smiled, pushing his hat back on his head. And here are the Campfire Sisters, Duffy de France and Monica Leo, telling stories about weddings. I went to a wedding for Stan and Rosalie, and my sister called when I was putting on the makeup, which uh, one of the uh, bulbs burnt out, so it was sort of a quick job, and I was sort of guessing where my eyebrows were and all that good stuff. And my sister called and said, be sure to help Mary, the mother of the groom, because she always gets stuck with all the work. So I said, I promise I'll help Mary. Went to the church, and I noticed right away there was an irritating crying baby. And the other thing I noticed was a guy dressed in just blue jeans and a T-shirt with a video camera getting into everybody's face, videotaping them. And uh, then I sat down, found my place, and I realized the bride had decorated the stage. It was like 14 feet high from the rest of the room. And she had dressed it up like a cloud. There was white tool netting all over. There was a canopy where the vows would be taken. And on the railings of the choir, there were four railings, for, um, and there were 50 votive candles on the railing surrounded by tool netting, a fireman's dream. And on the side, below the stage, on each side, were like, um, vases with a dozen red dozen roses and uh, 24 candles in, into different candelabras. So after the wedding, which went fairly well, um, Mary says, well, I need to clean up the church. They left and left everything for Mary. And I said, I am here to help you. And I said, I think the first thing we should do is blow out the candles. I think that would be a good thing to do before a fire starts. So I said, I can take the first railing because that's sort of short and I'm sort of short. And so I start in the middle going and going and going. And then I realized there was a whole bunch of tool netting on the end. And I realized that I was walking in space and I wanted to yell to Mary, I'm thinking I'm having a religious moment because I'm in space. And then I realized the tool netting had hidden a stairway. And I'm falling down the stairs and hitting the side. And I sort of hit myself. And I sort of did a somersault uh, slide bar. And I landed in the splits position. I have never done the splits in my whole life. But the groom had come back because he had forgotten something for his tuxedo. And a man came in, the same guy that was a videographer without the camera, and he's swearing, gosh, darn, sorry, sorry. worse than a, than a Navy captain. And he's swearing, and the minister had come back in. He said, stop swearing in church. 
And then the groom and this guy helped pick me up because I needed help because I was in the splits position. And Mary comes down to help me and she knocks over the vase of flowers that I hadn't broken and hadn't uh, knocked over yet. All the 24 candles are all bent or broken by this time. And there's water on the floor and the minister goes, just leave. I'll clean this mess up. And so I am sort of shaken for being a gymnastic person that I'm really not, um, not a just gymnastic person. Anyway, get to the reception and I sort of put my legs up because I am badly damaged. But, and I have wax all over my clothes. But so then I type a letter, email a letter to Mary the next day to apologize for crashing the wedding. And um, I also ask her questions like, what was with the irritating crying baby? Um, what was with the swearing man? And how do you get wax out of clothes? And um, how soon can I go back to church there? I have a whole bunch of questions. And she wrote me a long, long letter. And she said, well, that crying baby is, their grand, is her grandson. They decided to have the child first, then get married. The swearing man is the stepfather, and he was swearing because he had just put his camera away. If he still had his camera, he could have videotaped me and won a whole bunch of money from America's Funniest Videos. So that's why he was mad at me. And um, instead of trying to get wax out of your black clothing, why you wore black to a wedding, I don't know. But anyway, to get wax out of your clothes, just throw them away and buy new clothes. <laughs> and no, I will not recommend you to be a wedding coordinator. <laughs> How soon can you go back to church there? Maybe a year, unless you wear a disguise. <laughs> now, uh, to explain to the bride why she had some broken vases, broken roses, and broken candles, I just said the church had a very clumsy janitor. The church doesn't really have a janitor. And there were, actually, the bride was happy that you had blue eyebrows because that was her color. Uh, knowing you, I know it wasn't on purpose. Uh, by the way, I'm uninviting you to my candle party. You should never be around candles. Um, still your friend, Mary. Oh, P.S. I don't know how to make get rid of the bruises all over your leg and hip, but it'll go away eventually. And P.S., P.S., P.S. You did start the church on fire. The doctor says my hand should heal in about two weeks. Still your friend, Mary. True story. Holly and Lena got married, and after the wedding, they got in the car to drive north to Minneapolis for their honeymoon. On the way, Holly got a little affectionate, and he put his hand on Lena's knee. Lena said, you can go further than that, Holly. So he drove all the way to Duluth. A guy goes into a restaurant uh, in a local town, and he's sitting next to a couple uh, who are in their 70s, and the he eavesdrop, and the couple goes, this is where we had our first meal after we eloped. Do you remember that, honey? Oh, yeah. And we couldn't wait to get back to the motel, so we did the nasty behind the cafe against the fence. Oh, yeah, I remember that. Let's do it again. All right, honey. 
So the couple leaves the restaurant. They go behind the restaurant and next to the fence, and the man follows them and hides, and he watches as they take off their clothes, and they start doing the act. And for 20 minutes, they're bouncing around and dancing and just gyrating, and just finally, somehow they bounce off against the fence. They get their clothes back on, and they're awfully jittery and just shaken. And the man says to the uh, older guy, ah, how has it changed since your first time that you did it? The fence is electric. Now here's Aunt Fanny Rumble and Albert Collins in a song called What Shall I Wear to the Wedding, John? Oh, what shall I wear to the wedding, John? Oh, what shall I wear to the wedding, John? Oh, what shall I wear to the wedding, John? Johnny, my own true love. The best black frock in the yapper, be sure. The best black frock in the yapper, be sure. The best black frock in the yapper, be sure. Surely the wench is mad. Oh, can't I have something prettier, John? Oh, can't I have something prettier, John? Oh, can't I have something prettier, John? Johnny, my own true love. What's want a frock be flounces for? What's want a frock be flounces for? What's want a frock be flounces for? Surely the wench is mad. And what will you wear to our wedding, John? And what will you wear to our wedding, John? And what will you wear to our wedding, John? Johnny, my own true love. Me best smock frock and me gaiters be sure. Me best smock frock and me gaiters be sure. Me best smock frock and me gaiters be sure. Surely the wench is mad. Oh, can't you wear something smarter, John? Oh, can't you wear something smarter, John? Oh, can't you wear something smarter, John? Johnny, my own true love. What's want top hat and gaiters for? What's want top hat and gaiters for? What's want top hat and gaiters for? Surely the wench is mad. And who shall we have to the wedding, John? And who shall we have to the wedding, John? And who shall we have to the wedding, John? Johnny, my own true love. The mother and father and sister be sure. The mother and father and sister be sure. The mother and father and sister be sure. Surely the wench is mad. And can't we have someone else, John? And can't we have someone else, John? And can't we have someone else, John? Johnny, my own true love. What's want the prince and princess for? What's want the prince and princess for? What's want the prince and princess for? Surely the wench is mad. And what shall we have for dinner, John? And what shall we have for dinner, John? And what shall we have for dinner, John? Johnny, my own true love. Shitties and cabbage and bacon, be sure. Shitties and cabbage and bacon, be sure. Shitties and cabbage and bacon, be sure. Surely the wench is mad. And can't we have something nicer, John? And can't we have something nicer, John? And can't we have something nicer, John? Johnny, my own true love. What's want duck and grain pays for? What's want duck and grain pays for? What's want duck and grain pays for? Surely the wench is mad. And how shall we go to the wedding, John? And how shall we go to the wedding, John? And how shall we go to the wedding, John? Johnny, my own true love. He's got two fine legs to walk we eye. He's got two fine legs to walk we eye. He's got two fine legs to walk we eye. Surely the wench is mad. And can't we have carriage and pair, John? 
Oh, can't we have courage and pair, John? Oh, can't we have courage and pair, John? Johnny, my own true love. Detect my arm and we'll walk like this. <laughs> Detect my arm and we'll walk like this. Detect my arm and we'll walk like this. Surely the wench is mad. If you're going to go to the bother and expense of putting up a tent, you might as well leave it up. That's what my Mennonite neighbors thought, anyway, when their daughter got married. And the Kaufman's tent was a fancy, spanking, new, white canopy tent. Not the old canvas kind that Menno Beachy usually brings up the road on the back of his horse-drawn wagon his teenage sons riding along with their sledgehammers to help raise the center pole and pound the stakes into the ground. No, the Kaufman's new tent was bright and tight, the sun shining down through its polyester cover, without patches or holes. Menno had placed the canopy right next to the Kaufman's garage that had been opened, scrubbed down, and filled with serving tables. More tables and chairs were placed under the tent with the bench wagon in the yard to provide the tablecloths and dishes. So the Kaufman's daughter was married on Thursday. The neighborhood picnic was held on Friday. And the Kaufman family reunion took place on Saturday, all under the same tent. On Friday night, I pulled up the lane, my coleslaw on the car seat, and wedged my car in between a buggy and a cart. Then I swung into the rhythm of the neighborhood picnic, an annual event we've been having every summer for the past 30 years, the party rotating from farm to farm. First, we bowed our heads for grace, then dug into the meatloaf and a variety of salads and casseroles, pickles and cheeses, rolls and buns. We were all told to bring side dishes, hot or cold. Our hosts would provide the coffee and dessert. A table under the garage window held a huge wedding cake with swirls of white icing decorating the top, a cake large enough to feed the guests from Thursday through Saturday. Act one. We ate in two groups, men on one side, women on another. Our conversation, as it always does, turned first to current events, an odd topic for most at the table, who have no news sources. The English simply interpret for the Amish and Mennonites. Did you ever think they'd find that submersible? Fran asked, then turned to the rest of the table and explained the tragedy. They went down in something like a small submarine? Whatever for? I knew they were goners, another neighbor said. Finally, the table agreed that the Titanic should have its privacy. The ship should be left alone, undisturbed, there at the bottom of the sea, without the English constantly trying to plunge down and gape at it. Act 2. Physical Ailments Oh, Lydia's toe was on the mend, but Naomi might have had to have surgery on her knee. She didn't know when, as she was still waiting for an appointment. 
It's been hard to get in anywhere since the pandemic, so you might as well cope with what you've got. Fran was displaying the most patience. She had fallen over her vacuum cleaner and broken her hip. She was still using a cane. But she was back to work after three weeks of recuperation. I broke my hip, but I didn't die. I'm still alive, Fran said. It could have been worse. That's the spirit, I said. The table broke into laughter. And Donna, just arriving from a friend's memorial, plopped down in the midst of us. Donna had told me that she would be late, but she'd hoped that she could make it to the picnic before the jokes began. Act Three. The men usually begin the jokes in the part of the evening where the two genders begin to co-mingle in a circle of chairs. Some hover over their coffee cups, and on this night, others sat in awe with their pieces of wedding cake, forks floating down through the sugary frosting. Behind us in the vast expanse of yard, the children were tossing balls and beanbags and running after each other, playing tag. Did you hear the one about the dog and the tree? No. They had a long conversation about bark. What did the duck say when he bought lipstick? Put it on my bill. Over the course of the evening, with the hot summer sun descending toward the horizon, the whole neighborhood came together, parents and children, all clustering under the tent on top of the hill, isolated, removed from the gaping English world. Yes, some of us had had our differences, but ultimately we all got along. We were all accounted for, members of each family in each of the surrounding farms. We chatted and laughed and made eye contact, heads up. We were away from the 24-hour news broadcasts, the tragic tales, away from the cords, plugs, texts, and messages, the blips and the blinks. The jokes got longer and funnier, one person trying to top the other. But try as we will, no one, not in many years, had topped the joke Jacob Kaufman once told. It's a high bar. To retell it, the children need to be occupied, the balls and beanbags whizzing through the air. We lean back in our chairs. There were three guys in a sauna, Jacob began. Two English guys, one with black hair, the other blonde, and an Amish guy. They were sitting there sweating, throwing water on the coals. The two English guys were talking about all the fancy things they could do on their computers and all the devices that they owned. Suddenly, they heard a buzzer go off. The Amish guy looked around, trying to figure out where the noise was coming from. Then the blonde English guy pressed a spot on his neck, and the buzzer stopped. What was that? The Amish man asked. Oh, just my secretary trying to find me, the man said. The three men kept sweating. Then the Amish man heard the sound of a phone ringing and ringing. The dark-haired Englishman pressed a spot on his wrist, 
and began talking. I am still at the office, honey. I'll be home soon, the man said. Talking to your wife? The Amish man grinned. The men kept sweating, sweating, and sweating. Suddenly, the Amish man jumped up and excused himself. He said he had to go to the restroom. After a while, he returned with some sheets of toilet paper trailing from his behind. What have you got there? The blonde man said. Oh, that's just a fax coming in, the Amish man said. I'm happy to announce that Buggy Land is now part of the Iowa Podcasters Collaborative, a group of podcasters creating content related to news, culture, and more. We're organized by the indomitable Robert Leonard. This group arose from the Iowa Writers Collaborative under the leadership of Julie Gamak. Here I've joined the ranks of so many talented writers, including Pulitzer Prize winner Art Cullen, Douglas Burns, Laura Bellin, and Damon James. The Writers Collaborative is a network of Substack pages, each writer in his or her own realm, but all linked together. I've created two Substack pages. On the first page, Mary Swander's Buggyland, you will get transcripts of Buggyland monologues and interviews, photos, and extra commentaries. On the second page, called Mary Swander's Emerging Voices, you will read young, diverse writers commenting on current social justice issues. Please subscribe. It's free, or if you care to, you can donate some money at substack.com. S-U-B-S-T-A-C-K dot com. And that brings our episode to an end. We were produced by Rick Brewer of Brew Ha Ha Audio Productions in our studios on Main Street in sunny Fremartintown. We had support today and would like to thank the Cinepid Fund, the Iowa Arts Council, the Werner Ellithorpe Fund at the Oregon Community Foundation, and the Calio Levine Fund, and all of you who have sent us individual private donations. We welcome your support. Like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Subscribe and never miss a podcast. Become a member or simply go to our website, agarts.org, and hit that red donation button. See you next time. Put it on my bill.